for the people who don't know about what does it mean to do metta, it means to, the, the practice of metta is the consistent wishing of uh, goodwill. It's praying for yourself or for other people. We tend a little bit to avoid the P word, I notice, in, uh, in Buddhist circles. But the truth is, it is pray without ceasing. That's actually the truth. I mean, to wish the good. I met someone once who said, I don't pray but I wish. So it's, it's the wishing of well. It's, uh, and there are two things about it. The wishing of well, for yourself or for anyone else, is the antidote to enmity. If I can wish well, then I don't have enmity in my heart. If I can wish well to myself when I'm in a bad place, it erases the enmity in me because I can't be annoyed at myself for being in a bad place. I am now wishing myself well, out of compassion. And there's the aspect of wishing well, which is the methodical, continual wishing of well, which is pray without ceasing, which has the effect of continuing the goodwill in the the absence of enmity in one's heart, but the continuing through the putting the intention there and also the continuing through the deepening of concentration, the very doing of and keeping that going keeps all the other stuff out of the mind, allows the mind to concentrate. When the mind is concentrated, it has in its own a degree of balance and calm so that it doesn't worry so much. It's the antidote to worry. So that it's the doing Actually, it's a prayer that's already answered in the doing. If you can wish well, if, when I can wish well to myself, my prayers are already answered. The greater prayer for peace in that moment, the ability to do it is to be already there. I've been thinking about that this week, about how much that... It, I was thinking about how the Buddha sat down in order to come to a place of peace But in order to come to a place of peace, he had to start in a place of peace. And it was really not to arrive at peace, but to discover that he could keep the peace. And really that what we're doing is we're practicing keeping the great natural peace that is the peace in the heart. I think the concern comes out of the, really out of wisdom, that concern is not worry, concern is concern. The the wisdom that is fundamental to see is the wisdom that, that suffering is ubiquitous, the first of the Four Noble Truths, sabam dukam, everything is suffering. It doesn't mean that every moment of life is... Um, it doesn't mean that there's no beauty, no creativity, no wonder, no amazement, no pleasures. It means that nothing lasts. And so even when there are lovely things and wonderful things and people often ask me do Buddhists have birthday parties you know do they dance yes they do and they sing and they do everything else that everybody else does but there's a way of um, really seeing the truth of poignancy see I I actually think of poignancy more than um, everything is suffering everything is ephemeral everything doesn't last there's a poignancy about that that's balanced by loveliness. You know, I uh, buy new fresh flowers once a week or my husband brings them home for me once a week and they're beautiful when they're new. And 
three days later, they're not new anymore. And five days later, they're really looking sad. And uh, so we need new ones, so we can get new ones. But sometimes if you look at something, you see in it the end of it. And there's a poignancy about that, you know. Um, when my father was dying in a nursing home in San Rafael, um, he, he, you probably all know because you've gone to visit nursing homes, that there are all kinds of people in wheelchairs sitting kind of slumped in hallways. and um, Even in the best of places that are clean and don't smell bad and people sitting and and they're usually looking um, worn out. And uh, I remember it, maybe because I was particularly alert with my father there dying, um, that there was a big framed picture over the nurse's station in a big oval frame, you know. I have two of those oval frames on, on the wall in my study at home of my grandmother and grandfather. That's what they used to do. They had beautiful big oval frames with pictures of a matriarch and patriarch. It's a big picture of a beautiful young woman with a style of blouse that was um, stylish in the 1910s, 1920s. Gibson girl blouse, it's called. It's got a certain kind of a collar and a certain kind of a beautiful woman, beautiful hairdo, fresh skin. And it had her name underneath, like, who knows, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, something like It wasn't that, but it was some, some estimable name. And I and I, I kind of got the feeling, since the nursing home wasn't named for her, that she probably was or had been a resident of that place. And that one of these people slumped in a wheelchair in an old body was this person whose picture was up there. You know, and it could have been any of them, you know, who knows. Um, I, some of you may remember... Um, uh, uh, Elaine Goodstadt, she's well. She's well. I haven't seen her in a long time. She moved a little bit away from here, and so she doesn't come so much on Wednesdays. So I haven't seen her in a number of years. And um, I was shopping in Longs in San Anselmo last night, and I knew Elaine well when we were young, when we had first moved to Marin 40 years ago. And I was checking out, and the, a woman said to me, Oh, Sylvia, and I looked at her, and it was just a very strange feeling. It was, I looked, and it looked just like Elaine Goodstadt. But it looked like Elaine Goodstadt 20 or 30 years ago. And she said, I'm Elaine Goodstadt. And so here was Elaine's daughter looking like Elaine when I first met her. And with her, she said, this is my daughter Megan, who looked like Linny when I met her. And I looked and I thought, wow, look at this. We just get pushed through. <laughs> so I'm happy to tell you that Elaine is still in this world. She wasn't, you know, but not here this morning. But I could see just how we passed through. And there's, a, there's something very lovely about that fading and morphing and re- returning. And there's something very poignant about it. Here's this beautiful, fresh young girl who looks like her grandmother. Looks like her grandmother's daughter and her grand. Just really interesting to think about. My grandchildren's great grandmother in Mexico died two days ago. She was ninety-two. And I was just thinking about her blood comes down through them, and 
they look a little bit like they have those kind of uh, they have very strong genes from that lineage and look a little bit like that, which I'm glad about. But there's a kind of a poignancy in the passing. And really that passing is what the Buddha taught as a central issue, that everything is fragile, that in the borning is the beginning of decay. And there's a way to look at that and say that's very sad, or there's a way of looking at it and saying that's just the way it is. So in the meantime, let's take really good care of each other while we're here. I think my own sense of that is when I'm struck with it particularly, I lower my voice a little bit. Like you want to be really careful with people. It's a really short passage through this world. Make it nice for them. I think that's what actually, uh, that's why when the Buddha's path is talked about, it's talked about the path of wisdom and compassion, that from wisdom comes compassion. If you really see the ephemeral quality of things, if you really see how fragile life is, if you really see how we are attached and have this capacity to love and we'll be separated from everything that we love or it from us before we know it. There's a way, if, this, if it's not quite balanced, you could get moody or morbid or melancholy, all of which I've done. I remember once saying to my teacher in the middle of some Again, some really intense practice time, talking to my teacher at, in that retreat, Joseph Goldstein. And I was seeing everything through the lens of arising and passing away, and I, I said to him, it's so sad. And he said, no, it's not sad. He said, it's just true. And it is. it's true. It's poignant. It's touching. And the truth is, when it happens to you and it's your people, it's sad. It is sad. There's something that, there's something, at least as far as I can tell, incontrovertibly true about the heart that no matter how much I understand the truth of arising and passing away, when it happens to you, the mind gets it, but the heart does not get it. The heart sinks. It takes some while for it to pick itself up. Isn't that true? You know, that... Um, The, in the beginning of the Mindfulness Sutta, it says this, um, the, the Buddha is teaching, he says, this, O monks, we translate it as this, O friends, is a really good way to come to the end of suffering, the end of grief and lamentation. And I don't know if we come to the end of grief. Maybe, maybe, or even lamentation. I was thinking, maybe we come to the end of lamentation with enough wisdom we can say these things happen but grief we could have I think I think it comes with bodies I think it's part of the instinct that we have as animals I don't even think it's just I I don't think it's um, limited to human beings either you know I don't Um, so what I thought I would talk about today while it's still here (laughs) Uh, is picking up the story of uh, the Buddha. So you have to do a little bit of a two-sentence recount for the people who weren't here last week about uh, the legend of the life of the Buddha was that he was born into some uh, very special kind of, uh, 
circumstances, his father being the um, prince of a certain province in northern India, certainly born into wealth and comfort, and the legends of his birth are that there were all kinds of auspicious signs that he was going to be a great person in some way. Um, Some of the legends are really... I did not tell you the one last week about the... Because it could be true, I'm just saying legend. But the story is that he was born out of his mother, stood on his own feet, walked seven steps. That's where it gets to sound legendary, you know? And said... uh, and said, uh, this is my final lifetime. This is the one that I'm going to be free. So, um, But I like that story, you know. I, it has the same... I like heroic stories. I like, uh, I like archetypal stories. And it also says that the heavens shook and flowers fall, fell down and covered the whole earth when he made that statement. And I like to think that... Um, hmm? They didn't hear that one? That's, that I, I like to think that you know, when I think what would happen if if that's a paradigmatic story, and what would happen if in this lifetime the whole world suddenly woke up to the truth of the havoc that happens from unrecognized greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind, and the whole world were able to somehow triumph over greed, hatred, and delusion, each person. I was thinking yesterday about uh, the the song from Judy Chicago. We'll have Eden once again, mm-hmm. you know. That. So here's the Buddha. He's born into the certain circumstance. His parents protect him from every um, possibility of seeing that life really uh, includes the sadness of old age, sickness, and death, or the 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 the, um, the troubling truth about old age, sickness, and death. And it's only as a young man in his uh, 20s that he has realizations, uh uh-oh, there is such a thing as old age, sickness, and death. And I remember saying that I think it's 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 a very wonderful archetypal story for all of us because I think certainly in my life and in yours, I think in everybody's life, you get it that people die, you know. Kids get it, their grandparents die, their... Uh, their cats and their dogs, and um, my granddaughter. Uh, one of my granddaughters has a rat, and her last rat died. Now she worries about this rat that it might die. It might, you know. Rats have a limited life, but they get it after all. The things die. You give them a burial, but there's a time I think in life, at least for me, where I was actually. Um, grown, and I had my own family that were quite precious to me, where I suddenly got it, that not only happens to other people, happens to everybody, including it could happen to me and my people. And often people come to the Dharma because something tragic has happened in their life, some untimely separation from someone, you know. We're used to three score and ten, okay, well, actually, nowadays, at three score and ten, somebody dies at three score and ten, we say, oh, such a young person, you know. Now you have to be 95 for no one to say, you know. Um, uh, but um, I was actually uh, probably in my uh, late 20s, 30s, 
and I had the, a family that was dear to me. And I began to really think, uh-oh, they are dear to me. Everything is working out well. I've done all the things that you're supposed to do to make you happy in life. I've gone to school. I've grown up. I've made a relationship. I've made a family. I have work that I do that makes me happy. And at any moment, any of it could be lost to me, or any of them could be lost to me, or of my friends. Or, and the, 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 the existential question, a lot of people do that earlier, I think. Maybe a lot of people are philosophical earlier, but somehow I didn't think about it particularly earlier. I knew that that happened for sure. I mean, you can't get to be an adult. I was even at that time... Well, probably I was in graduate school, was learning to be a therapist. I was sitting with people who were dealing with issues of loss. But it was their loss, not mine. And I began to suddenly get it, uh-oh. And realized that I had a great deal of anxiety about that. I think I'd had it my whole life, actually, but not really clear about it. And I started to meditate, actually, because I thought that somehow that would... Uh, Somehow that would address the problem of old age, sickness, and death. But it doesn't address old age, sickness, and death. That happens anyway. What it does, I hope, is it makes a heart that's more able to bear the idea of discomfort. If we said here, how many people in this room? We won't do it. Um, the Buddha said, a woman came to the Buddha one time uh, with her child who had died and uh, said, I, I hear that you are a wonder worker and you do miracles. And, uh, will you restore my son to life? And the, the Buddha said, yeah, I will. But you need to bring me, I need to do a certain ritual to do it. And for me to do the ritual, you need to bring me a mustard seed from a house where there never has been a death. So the woman goes house to house, and of course in every house there's been a death. It's not possible for that. In every family there's been death. Um, So she comes back, actually, uh, and bows to the Buddha and realizes that that was the teaching. Not that, alas, he couldn't do the ritual, but really that's the truth. There There isn't anything that isn't touched by loss And what happens in her is her heart gets big enough to hold it at that point. So the Buddha, when he discovers his own uh, dismay about old age, sickness, and death, and how will the mind be able to understand that and not resent life or not misuse it? Or What will we do? What will we do is the question, given the fact of the temporality of life. So he went off in those days, what people went off to do, is they went off, renounced, became meditation students, became monks, and meditated. And he spent three years with one teacher, three years with another teacher, in both cases was invited to teach with them because he was able to so control his mind that he could do every austerity. But he said, you know, I have not really come to the end of my question of what it, what's the cause of suffering and the end of suffering that will be useful to all beings. So he went off by himself, which is where we left the story last week, and uh, went to the town of Bodh Gaya, took a meal, 
of uh, rice gruel, I think we decided it was, and sat down under the bow tree. So that's where we left the story last week. And the story there, so there's another very beautiful symbolic uh, story of that moment, that he sat down and he said, I'm not getting up from here until I'm enlightened. So I love that part of the story. It's like Deborah's determination about I won't move. Not getting up from here until I'm enlightened. And so he sat down and Mara, who was the personification of um, anti-good, so the evil one, Mara is called in the scripture. And I'm not sure... I keep thinking of Mara as a woman, but that's only because we have Mara as a woman's name. It's very interesting. Once you know about who Mara was in the scripture, you don't. Anybody here has a child named Mara? It was very popular for a while to name children Mara, but it's like that perfume named Samsara. It's a beautiful sounding name, but Samsara means rounds of suffering. So you don't want to. You don't want to name. You know, it's if you. It's a bad name for a perfume, really. But. But Mara means, in, at least in the scriptures, a beautiful name. Probably means something great in another language. But anyway, in Mara is a personification of evil. And really, uh, my colleagues this week, I checked with them. They say, no, no, Mara's a man. It's a he, Mara, he. And I looked it up, actually, in one of the legends of the Buddha. It seems like Mara is a he. Anyway, Mara came, and in the night, according to the legend, did three kinds of... Uh, torments of the Buddha. But the Buddha has sat down with a determination not to be moved. I began to think of uh, the Buddha when I was thinking about the, this week as um, um, in, the, in, the, in the 60s, in the peace movement, um, people sat down and said, I will not be moved. I have a job to do here. I have a right to be here. I'm going to do what I have to do for the benefit of all beings, and I will not be moved. I was um, hearing refrains of we shall overcome all the while that I was thinking about this and writing this. So here comes the Buddha, he sits down, and here comes Mara throwing arrows and spears. And The arrows and spears are all the frightening things that could happen. Uh, there are all kinds of images of wrathful deities and all the fears that could come and disturb the mind. When we get frightened, our mind gets disturbed. That's really the, co- the cause of confusion in the mind is fear comes into it and, ah, oh, what do I do with myself? But the Buddha is not perturbed, the Buddha-to-be sitting there. Apparently, here come these spears. He has cultivated such an aura of metta, of loving kindness around him, that as the spears approach him, they turn into flowers and fall down around his feet. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. That you could so surround your heart with love that you really are completely protected. Somebody came this week, and I had said as an instruction up there, I said, I say this mantra to myself a lot, may I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart. And someone came a day or so later and said, look, I'm a little concerned about this unprotected heart. I said, it's not an unprotected heart. It's an undefended heart, which is completely protected. That a heart that's not... Anyway, 
I hope that that's not just a semantic um, acrobatics. I think that the heart that's not poised in self-defense, that the the heart that's completely open and loving is protected by its own lovingness. Bad things might happen to this body. You could be the most loving person in the world and bad things could happen to you. But they couldn't perturb your heart. You know, it's the heart that remains actually invulnerable. It's completely, it's completely fine. I mean, people could do terrible things, and life could do terrible things to my body. I think it's about having a heart that's completely protected by being undefended. May I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart. So here is uh, the Buddha, who isn't going to fight. He sits down. Here's Mara trying to lure him into a fight with all these wrathful deities trying to bring up anger and fight. Did I tell you the story about my grandchildren? Um, I don't know. We didn't see each other for three months. Did I, did I tell you about Harrison and Honor and their little conversation last week? I don't want to tell it twice. No? Uh, I was babysitting, and uh, Harrison and his younger sister, Harrison is six, and um, at my house, and Harrison came into the kitchen, put his little hands on his hips, said, Honor just called me shithead. <laughs> so she's three. So, so, and I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm in a pretty good mood, so I say, uh, well, people do that sometimes. So he says, oh. And he goes back in the next room, resumes playing with her. A little while later, she comes in. Also, you can see, indignant. Bubby, Harrison is in the top bunk, and he is throwing all the Beanie Babies all over the floor. I say, well, it's a really good thing, isn't it, that you're not the police of the world. You don't have to do anything about that. Oh, okay. It is... But in both cases, I was having a really good time because I, you know, I don't think I did it that well with my own children. But, but I, I was in a very good mood and I was relaxed and I could see it was coming spoiling for a fight, you know, looking to get me. And I was thinking about the, the peace stickers that we used to have on the back of our, which we could still have on the bumper stickers of the car. What if they gave a war and nobody came? You know, that this is it. He's coming out to invite me into a war. I said, no thanks, you know. And you don't have to go either, as a matter of fact, you know. We could be advocates for peace. So here's the Buddha sitting, spears come. He is his own peace advocate. No, I'm not doing that today. Thank you very much. Then comes exotic um, visions of erotic pleasures that are going to arouse his lust. But he has practiced so much steadying the mind through every, um, through every desire of the body that those bodily lusts don't get a hold of him anymore. Um, I actually think that, uh, you know, it's an apocryphal story, you know, it's an allegory. I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to kill all the lust in us. Most of us hope not to do that, but to be in charge of the lust system to have a lust system that doesn't run your life for you. that uh, To be able to say, this desire came up, this is a healthy desire, this is a time to 
respond to that healthy desire. This is a desire that came up. This does not tend for the good. I don't have to respond to it. It's a great relief, actually, to know I am not getting pulled around life by my by my lusts. Everyone in, not everyone, just everyone in 12-step programs, but everyone in the world knows that a lust's under control. If your lust system is under control, you walk around the world quite safe because you know that you're not going to make a mistake by any one of the pulls of any one of the lusts that come up. So here's the Buddha, and he is unmoved. He sits there. And then here comes the last, the last assault of Mara. And the assault comes in the form of uh, um, doubt. You can't do this. You won't get there. The Buddha, in this classic gesture, puts his hand out on the ground and says, uh, let the earth be my witness. I have a right to be here. I love that. You know, that I have a right to be here. It reminds me of the, of the protests that we did in, in the 60s and now. I have a right to be here and say what I need to say and do what I need to do for the benefit of all beings. So I, I actually uh, have been thinking about this all week as preparing it for today and Thinking about uh, when I've been sitting in when I've been sitting because I've been sitting quite a lot this week on this retreat, and I find my mind suddenly caught up in a whole bunch of uh, plans or stories or turbulations about this or that, and then I catch it, you know, tell, it's telling itself a story that is upsetting, not about myself or anybody else, and I say to myself, "Wait a minute, get out of here, Mara. I don't have to do that." What if they gave a war? What if I don't do that? What if I say, thank you very much, I'm not doing this? I actually had the recollection this week that um, the people, that there are rules, there are Sabbath rules. And in this country, if you're old enough, you know that at, at some point, um, this country had quite a strong Sabbath consciousness that businesses were closed on Sunday. Because the, the the scripture injunction is not to do any work on on the Sabbath, so depending on your Sabbath, you don't work on Sunday or you don't work on Saturday. And I grew up in that kind of. I grew up in New York City where people had one or another Sabbath. But I grew up in that context of knowing that you didn't work on the Sabbath, and there were rules about what constitutes work. And in very traditional communities. Uh, that I knew about but didn't live in, lived nearby. One of the rules is that you don't carry on the, like pick up heavy things and carry them to a far distant place because that might constitute work. So on the one hand, you think, well, you know, taking books over to your friend's house. I mean, but in very serious, very serious traditional communities, there's a rule about carrying, picking up things and carrying. Don't carry things, it's work. And I began to think about not how I would like to interpret that, not in the context of in the context of the Buddha's practice. Uh, what constitutes work is carrying stuff along in the mind that you don't need, and picking up stuff that you don't need. I began to think about you know the, and actually I oftentimes about thought about that rule about what does it mean don't pick up, but when I think about Harrison comes in and says, Bubby, I could pick it up or not. I can just leave it there. 
just leave it there. You don't have to pick it. You don't have to do anything. I, I hoped afterwards, I thought, I hope I did that so that they know that I heard what they said. I wasn't indifferent to their distress in the moment, that I was, I tried, to, I didn't laugh at them, although I had to hold it in because I thought it was very funny. So I really sound concerned, and but just reassuring them, you don't have to do anything about that. People do that sometimes. This is the way it is. Okay. That you don't have to pick it up. And I began to think to myself, there's an old Zen story about um, two Zen monks who are walking along and come to a uh, um, a place in the road where the river has washed over in a big rain and there's a big area in the road that's quite muddy and still hard to pass through. And uh, a woman has arrived at the same time and this is an old Japanese Zen tale so she's a woman in this Japanese kimono, beautiful kimono. And here she is, she's going to have to track through all this mud and one of the monks picks her up, carries her through the mud and puts her down on the other side. And the two monks keep walking. Three or four hours later, one of the monks, they're walking along quietly, and one of the monks says, I can't hold this in anymore. I can't believe that you picked up that woman. We're not even supposed to look at a woman, no less touch a woman, no less pick up a woman. And the other monk says, I put her down three hours ago, and you're still carrying her. So that... That kind of a thing about you pick up and, you know, if you pick it up, you could put it down. You don't have to carry it along with you. Don't pick up and don't carry. Become very important rules for me. As I watch the mind, here comes a story, I'm sitting nicely, my mind quiet, nice, da, da, da. All of a sudden I think, that wasn't so nice what so-and-so said to me. You know, it just floats in. Don't you have thoughts like that? That wasn't so nice. So when I see her, I'll say, da 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 and maybe I'll tell so-and-so what she said. And, uh, and all of those thoughts are painful thoughts. And the other possibility is, here could come the thought, that wasn't so nice what she said to me. And it, maybe it wasn't nice what she said to me. But that could be enough. That's true. It wasn't nice what she said to me. Okay. Came the thought, informed me. I had an opinion about it. Not so nice. I felt a little displeasure about the thought. And it's gone. I don't have to carry it for three hours. I don't have to carry it for a minute, except if it's frightened me. I don't have to carry it even if it's frightened me, but I think what happens in the mind is that when we are frightened, well, it's the thought that, let's take that one along, how could she have said that to me? What other people think of me? What if she's saying that to other people about me? What if she is, here is my ego at stake. What if people think that about me? She might say that about me. It's not true about me. All that stuff. There's, you know, that uh, there's a really wonderful line. There's a, a sixth-century commentator named um, Shanti Deva, who said, "What if somebody um, disparages your good name, and you hear about it, and anger starts to arise in you? What should you do?" And said, "You should think thus. Are they right?" If they're right, maybe you could fix it up and you'll be better off. And as a matter of fact, maybe they're doing you a favor. And if they're not right, what's the problem? And I think to myself, what's the problem? (laughs) They could have told people. 
They could have told people. They're having that opinion of me. Maybe I have to defend it. I've been looking at um, I've been looking at letters to the editor. People have like long dialogues and letters to the editor. Some of you may know I write for the Shambhala Sun. So somebody says something in one in one issue about something that I said. Somebody says something in the next issue about I can't believe what that person said about that. And then somebody writes in the next issue I can't believe what that person said about what the first person said. <laughs> And it's really interesting to me, you know, that, and, and I'm sure that the son gets a million letters. Well, not a million, but they probably get a lot of letters every month. But I think they put those letters in there because people are interested in that sort of, you know, who's saying what about whom, that somehow it catches the mind. It makes it dramatic or interesting. It's just an opinion. It's just an opinion. So here's the Buddha, and he is sitting and he is maintaining the peace. And what I really thought about is that uh, he had to be peaceful before he started. I always think about that enlightenment experience about he was almost on the verge of getting there. Then he sat down, boom, he's there. I began to think, he's there. Just sat down and manifested it. Maybe that was his uh, baptismal event or something, baptism kind of by fire that he had to prove that he could maintain the peace, keep the peace through every possible torment. Um, has this for a line. Um, <coughs> Futile the winds to a heart in port. That's a piece of... Isn't that beautiful? That's a line from Emily Dickinson. Futile the winds to a heart in port. Done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden. I don't think that's it. I, I, I just heard that actually for the first Someone read it. My friend Steve read it on uh, Saturday while we were here having a workshop. Who was here? Betty was here. You remember that? That futile the, uh, the winds to a heart and poor. That was the best. I've been I've been saying that to myself as a mantra actually since then. Futile the winds to a heart and port. And when I see my mind, here comes a little thought. She shouldn't have said that about me. Or, oh, da, da, da. some tri- some tribulation comes in, and I see it's just about to blow and disturb my peace of mind. I say to myself, futile the winds to a heart and port. <laughs> and if my heart wasn't in port, it gets there pretty fast because I I like that so much. We could try it at the end of the time, just sit there. You know, when the Buddha sat down and said, I'm not going to move, there's a poem in um, one of the, in one of the collections of, of scriptures in which he's, he's talking to Mara and he said, you're not going to get me. You can't get me because I have faith and energy and wisdom too and mindfulness and I will have more concentration. And those are the five spiritual faculties, actually. They're the five spiritual powers when they're developed. And uh, that's another one of the Buddha's lists. There are lots of lists that the Buddha is said to have made. I actually think that it's likely that the people who recited his teachings for the 500 years between his death and the time it was written down 
put everything in lists because it was easier to remember it. But those five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, wisdom, concentration, and mindfulness, come together in a package. He says tomorrow, just before he sits down, you're not going to get me because I have those firmly established. So I won't be shaken. It's said that in that night, he really understood more deeply than ever the Four Noble Truths, the Three Factors, the Three uh, Characteristics of Experience, the way in which the mind um, creates, um, uh, the way in which suffering arises in the mind, the way in which suffering is uh, undone in the mind, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. I think in the weeks to come, if you like, We'll do a week on the Four Noble Truths and the Five Hindrances and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. We'll do really a course in Buddhism 101. But at the end of the time, um, would you like that, by the way? Okay, Four Noble Truths next week. So at the end of the time, uh, when uh, when the, the first star of the morning arose and he had fully penetrated the the truth of karma um, and declared his enlightenment. He stayed there in the area of that bow tree in Bodh Gaya for some time. And presumably the story is, the legend is, the story is that he debated about going out and teaching what he had learned with himself um, because he realized the vastness of ignorance and the vastness of confusion and suffering, and uh, that he thought to himself, what difference could it make? And you remember the story about the image of, um, the vision of um, the old age, sickness, death, and a monk being the visions that sent him out on his quest. So he had another vision, some more uh, messengers from some, divine realm appeared to him and told him that he should go out to teach uh, for the benefit of uh, for those with little dust that there were people out there there were ignorance was vast but for those with little dust to teach for the benefit of those people and he goes out on his beginning of his uh, teaching career that went from the time that he was about 35 till he was in his 80s. So he actually walked and talked throughout India for uh, 50 years, teaching monks and then nuns. And uh, the first story, um, the first story, which maybe bring us to the end of our time, of it, the end of the story for today, was uh, he met as he was walking along, coming to Benares, which is some distance from Bodh Gaya, in the deer park in Benares, he saw coming towards him five mendicants, five monks that he had been practicing with when he was doing his austerity practice. And uh, monks who had uh, chided him in their minds and I think also to him when he had left, when he'd said, you know, this is not the end of suffering, so I need to go out on my own, discover the end of suffering. And here come those five monks and the story again says, they said to each other when they saw him for a distance, here comes that fallaway monk, Gautama, who uh, didn't stay with the rigid program 
let's ignore him. Let's snub him. That's like such an unmonk thing to say, you know, let's snub him. But it makes a very good story. But then as they were walking along, the story continues, they saw, even from a distance, that he had such a radiance about himself and that he had such a calm about himself and such a, an aura of peace that they knew that he knew. And they were his first students, and he sat down with them. And the very first major teaching that he did was the teaching that set into, ter- set into motion the turning of the wheel in the Deer Park in Benares, And so that's where we'll start the story next week. I'll tell you what he told them in that particular sermon. You might want to know that at the end of the sermon, all of them were awakened, and they became his first disciples. Um, Does that sound good? So I want to tell you a little bit more. We have, we have 10 minutes. So I want to tell you about two of those particular factors and those spiritual factors. Because there are, there are a peculiar group of things, those spiritual factors, wisdom, faith, energy, concentration, and mindfulness, because you can't practice all of them. You can't say, today I'm going to practice faith. I mean, it, faith is something that accrues, that uh, develops um, that sustains, but you can't say today I'm going to have a day of great faith. I'm going to a place, I'm going to for eight hours, I'm going to practice faith. But you could say, neither I think can you say today I'm going to practice wisdom or today I'm going to practice energy. You could try to do things in a wise way. You could try to really manage your energy in a way that was useful. Sometimes when I teach a day long here in this room, at lunchtime, I tell people, take your lunch quietly, don't talk to anybody. And uh, why don't you practice eating your lunch like a Buddha? Nobody ever says, how should I do that? You know, that everybody figures out you know, in some, it's, uh, that we have a place that we relate to that, lets us, that somehow says this is a wise way to do it. But still, with all the intention in the world, if I just said I want to do my day wisely... I'm not sure I could do it that wisely if I were distracted, if I were confused. Matter of fact, I'm sure I couldn't do it wisely if I were distracted or confused. So the two parts of those five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, wisdom, mindfulness, and and concentration, that you can practice a mindfulness and concentration. That's what we're doing here. When we sit quietly with a determination not to move, Concentration builds when we pay attention moment to moment to a very small field of inquiry. The concentration builds. Sometimes people think, well, we have to do a certain kind of practice to develop concentration. Used to be that I thought so as well, that concentration practice was having only one focus, that you had to have one mantra, one candle flame, one word, one mental image, one something and just stay there in order to develop concentration. It turns out that the mind concentrates when it connects with an object moment to moment, even if it's not the same object. It was such a relief to me to find that sequential moments of mindfulness build concentration, that I did not have to sit and stare at one thing. 
or keep one mantra going or one image going. If I paid attention to this and to this and to this and to this and to this, all the while my concentration is deepening. So they really go together. Nor can you practice concentration, even if you said, you know what, I'm going to do metta practice. I'm just going to say one resolve over and over again. Or I'm going to say, may I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart, over and over again. So you say, okay, this is concentration practice because I'm just doing this one thing. But in fact, you need a lot of mindfulness to let you know if you're doing it or you're not doing it, or you're falling asleep, or you're doing it but you don't feel like doing it or you did it and this feeling came up in you, so that really they are intrinsic and inherent one to the other. They really aren't separate. It's a great relief to know that, that concentration practice and building concentration really sustains mindfulness in this way. Mindfulness is not knowing what's happening. It's knowing what's happening in a balanced, non-reactive way. It's not possible to be mindfully hysterical or mindfully <laughs> panic-stricken. That, that, uh, it's not just naming what's happening. It's helpful to name what's happening when you're upset and it gets a little hold on the situation, but it's not actually mindfulness because it's, it's a good thing to do. It's a good technique. I uh, was getting dressed in the gym it's a little bit before I hurt my neck. I was still in the gym. I was getting dressed in the gym one day. There was a new woman in my row getting dressed one morning, taking her stuff out of the locker, putting it on. And she's talking to herself. Um, a woman about my age, she's talking to herself about, okay, now I'll put the brush in here and I'll take this out here. Now I'll put the shoes over here. So uh, I said something you know, nice to her because I said, Oh, you talk to yourself. She said, well, only when I'm doing something complicated. She, she said, <laughs> she said uh, uh, and she was visiting. It was a new place for her. That's why she was new. She was visiting. She said, only when I'm doing something complicated. Then if I keep talking to myself, I, you know, I, she said, otherwise, mostly I whistle. It was very sweet. But it was very cute, wasn't it? I, th- I thought that was sweet. We had a whole talk about what do you mean whistle? And she was talking about keeping her heart afloat. But, you know, sometimes, I, I, don't, I don't think actually it's a factor of age. I think at any age you say, okay, I'm going to do this, and then I'll do that, and then I'll do that, then I'll do that. If you're in some sort of a jam, the mind first thinks, okay, I'll call this, I'll call that. If this doesn't work, I can't open this car door, well, I'll call AAA. Okay, my cell phone isn't working, so now I'll... Da, 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 da. So we talk to ourselves and we figure things out. That's not mindfulness. Actually, mindfulness would be naming what's happening in a way that's completely balanced and calm. And of course you can do that all completely balanced and calm. When If it happened to me, I don't know if I'd be so balanced and calm. It depends on the time of day or night or where I was. and might have a little bit more fear in it. Even if it could have fear in it, if it could be non-reactive to the fear, it would still be mindfulness. It would know that, okay, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. And this is how I'm responding. That word non-reactive is so crucial. I'll read you uh, one little thing from here. I've been carrying this around, waiting for a good time to read it. This is it. 
talking about, really it's about mindfulness being, the, the penetrating insight that comes from mindfulness being uh, the cause for the end of suffering. So this is a, um, mindful observation is meditation, mindful observation is, wait, 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 let me go up another talking about the the Buddha teaching, emphasizing mindfulness, paying attention to what's happening moment to moment as bringing about a complete change in our mental attitude so that we're able to give up fighting with experience and just rest in it. And uh, the question is, he says, how can such a change be brought about? And the answer is, again, very simply stated, again, Far from, although it's very simply stated, far from easy to carry out. It is to cultivate the mindful, non-reactive observation of bodily and mental processes so as to develop an increasingly thorough awareness, undistorted by our usual desires, fears, views, etc., of their true nature, that everything is impermanent without self, and therefore involving suffering on our part until we learn to let go. This next sentence, two sentences, just I loved. I wrote them, I typed them out, I put them on a paper, I got them, um, what do you call it in Kinko's, laminated, and I used it for a bookmark for years. I loved it. It is through mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion which makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. (laughs) I love that. I think we should uh, sit for two or three minutes. Would you like me to read you that line from Emily Dickinson so you could say it to yourself? Futile the winds to a heart in port.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 11, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.